Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. This is Perry Marshall. I'm here with John Feldman, and John is the creator of a film called Symbiotic Earth, which is a documentary about Lynn Margulis and her revolutionary ideas. And I have previewed the film and I thought it was fantastic. It's also very rich, like it tells the story and it doesn't get bogged down, but there's a lot of little details. You know, it's the kind of movie, if you wanted to watch it two or three or four times, you would pick up more stuff every single time. And it's very richly layered. And Lynn Margulis is a fascinating person and really very important to 20th and 21st century science, Um, not just merely an interesting person. So I have John Feldman here. And uh, John has been kind enough to let me take a peek at, at the movie before it's come out. And John, welcome. Thank you, Perry. Thanks. Happy to do this. So I was just hoping that you would be able to, to give me an idea. There's a before you encountered Len Margulis and her ideas, and there's an after. Can you give me an idea? I mean, it wasn't just merely an interesting person that you met. Can you give me some context as to why this proved to be important enough to go to the trouble of making a movie, which is no small undertaking. It's a huge project. So... In 2005, I was asked to make a movie about the World Evolution Summit that was being held on the Galapagos Islands. And Lynn Margulis was a participant in that summit, as were many, many, really most of the most prominent evolutionary biologists in the world. And I had a very basic understanding of evolution. I was a neo-Darwinist, or those were the ideas that I had been taught. And when I first encountered Lynn, she realized right away that I did not understand symbiogenesis and her view of evolution. And we were walking one day down to lunch, and I asked her a question, a rather basic question. I don't want to say stupid question, but a basic question. And at that point, we got to the dining hall. She took me aside, and she spent the next 45 minutes explaining to me symbiogenesis and treating me like a colleague, almost like an equal, and explaining it to me in such a way that I really began to understand it and I began to understand the the significance of it. And this was amazing to me because, first of all, she was, you know, a big star in, in, in the biology field. She was quite an intimidating personality. She had just come from several television interviews. And for her to sit down with me, a stranger to her, and take the time to explain everything and to do it with patience was phenomenal. And it was really at that point, not that I knew I would make a movie about her, but that I really began to understand that science is about the people and the personalities, and their ideas, and their context in culture. And it's not these truths that we learn in a textbook. And I have a a degree in biology from the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was always taught, really, that science was stuff that we memorized, and that we had to understand the theories And there were tests, and we had to know the right answers. This was the first time I had ever had any real contact with a scientist that led me to believe that that her personality and her culture and her history was a part of the science. So that was really the beginning of my relationship with her. And I then went on to make this film, which I had been tasked to make, 
Uh, it became Evo, 10 questions everybody should ask about evolution, which is distributed by the National Science Teachers Association, NSTA, and is an educational film. And it's quite traditional. It's tr quite neo-Darwinist in its, in its approach. I did include stuff about cooperation, and I did include stuff about group selection. And those are the two elements of the film that I got the most criticism for and that many people thought that I should never have included anything about group selection and not to mention cooperation. And so, but I did because I really had believed it and I still believe it, of course. When that DVD came out and there were many notable scientists involved in that DVD and that film and there um, was only one person who really actively got back to me with her comments. And that was Lynn. Hmm. Lynn basically said to me that the film was quite good. It was, it was very well done. She was very quite complimentary. And then she sent me an email, which starts off the film, which basically describes this film as neo-Darwinian capitalistic propaganda. <laughs> uh, unless I made a sequel and because she wanted me to tell the real story about evolution, to get away from the textbook answers and tell the real story. You know, at first when I got that email, I was pretty taken aback. It was a little harsh, but she does everything like that, I think, with real love. But with the understanding that the assumption was that I could go further, that I hadn't gone far enough. And so that's always a nice thing to hear. And so I took the bait and I began working with her um, about what this film would be, what a film about the real story of evolution would look like and who I should talk to. And we didn't get very far in that discussion. She had given me some of her archives and she had put, helped me put together a list of people I should interview. And then I got an email saying that she had passed away. Hmm. Wow. So, that obviously was quite a blow, and I kind of had to step back and wonder, well, what was I going to do now um, with that film idea? And her close colleague, who had become by then my friend, Jim McAllister, invited me to help him film a symposium they were having in memory of Lynn, about Lynn's ideas in which many of her colleagues would speak. This was at Amherst in early 2012. So as I was participating in that, it became clear to me that what I had to do was a biography of her coupled with the story of her ideas. And that was the genesis of this. And I have to say that when I first started, I said, oh, this is no big deal. I'll make a quick film and you know, it'll be wonderful, and I'll interview a few people and, and so forth. And But it, it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And the reason it grew so much, and this is, I think, the real answer to your question, is because what she was saying and what she was doing in her life was to create and perpetuate an entire revolution in biology or really in the sciences, in the life sciences, and in evolution. It wasn't just evolution. It was everything. And so the more I got into it, the more I realized that this story had to be told, and it had to be told in such a way scholars and laymen would get the whole picture. One of the reasons it's, it's I realized that I couldn't skim the story. Mm. I had to really be able to explain things so that it was all there. And explaining science is, is difficult because you have to kind of reach different levels of, of people's understandings. So I kept having to go back and say, well, what if a person doesn't really know what DNA is? What if they don't know the term genome? You know, and you keep having to go back to some basic level. But anyway, that was, that was really the inspiration for it. And I was continually inspired by Lynn. And the, the journey of making the film 
was really phenomenal because I had at my disposal her entire archive of not just videos about her, um, but videos she had made. And in particular, and one of the, the most rewarding and intimate parts of it was that Lynn would photograph protists and bacteria through a microscope and she would have on top of that microscope a video camera and she used a little Sony video camera and she would turn on that video camera at the beginning of her session and turn it off when she was done and as you know everybody kind of knows those video cameras standard handycam have a microphone and the microphone is on all the time. And the microphone is right there, <laughs> right yeah. where, where she is. And so she would talk all the time. And she would talk to the microbes. And she would talk to people who walked into the room. And she would talk to herself. And it was all there. <laughs> and she knew it was on. She knew yeah. it was on because it was her w way of recording important things that she saw. But I don't know that she ever imagined that some filmmaker would be <laughs> listening, listening to it. And, oh, dear. Yeah. And, you know, usually when you go through footage, and this is hours and hours and hours, probably hundreds of hours of this stuff. Usually when you go through footage in the editing process, you kind of fast forward through it. You kind of fast forward through it to see what's going on, right? But yeah. you can't fast forward through this stuff because the little moments when she speaks are very sporadic and they would go by so fast you never even hear them in the fast forwarding process. So literally I had to sit there for hours and hours and it was as if I was sitting next to her in front of the microscope. And sure. it was just an amazing thing. And you know, I, I pulled a couple of the, what I thought were the best bits out of that, but the, the depth of that material is, you know, unplummeted at the moment. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So is there a sense in which you had been blissfully unaware before, and then you encounter this whole little universe and in your, I mean, this, this must've turned your world upside down. Are you in made a film? Yes. And I think blissfully unaware is probably a, a well put. It did turn my world upside down. And, and it turned my world upside down in, in many different ways, because it's not just that I finally began to understand, for instance, why we all have the wrong impression about what is genetics or the role of genes in our lives, uh, in our bodies. Um, that's a scientific thing. I can kind of understand that once someone explains it to me. But I'm very interested in science and the process of science and what it is to be a scientist. And my father was a physicist, mm. so I had some understanding of that. And that really opened my eyes. Learning about her and her life and her encounters really opened my eyes to what is science and what, the, what a real scientist is. You know, I put real in quotes, but, you know, she was really curious about things, and she was very open-minded. And I have footage in which she actually is talking to a scientist and she learns something and she changes from that point on, she changes her theory and the way in which she went about her process and her interactions with other scientists who didn't agree with her really opened my eyes to what, to, to, to the human endeavor of science, which is really the human endeavor of curiosity and skepticism and more curiosity and doubt and more curiosity, and it's always a continuing process where there are no real solid answers. That to me was mind-blowing. So is there a sense in which once you discovered this, you became aware of a problem that you hadn't been conscious of or you had been experiencing the symptoms of but maybe didn't have language to describe Oh, like, was, was there a, a, a chronic sense of, well, there's something a little off here, except nobody quite knows what it is? The best answer I can give to that is that when you think about Gaia and what I guess would still be called the New Age movement, 
and how we all have ideas, for instance, that, you know, working together is very important and cooperation is very important and that, you know, all organisms have a certain type of intelligence. We think of those ideas as somehow not science, that they're loose, they're, you know, wishy-washy, whatever you want to call it, and that, that you know, well, science isn't like that. You know, you, you can't call plants intelligent, you know, or that, uh, you know, well, yes, you know, sure, there's cooperation, but the real truth is that everything is tough and, that, you know, it's all competitive struggles and so forth. So giving scientific credibility and validity and evidence for some of these ideas which had previously been relegated to the kind of the new age wishy-washy uh, thinking was very important to me. So that was kind of a, a, a turning point, I think. And other, you know, there are many examples of that. And I think the challenge for me was being able to take lots of ideas from various sectors of life and pull them together into a unified theory. I mean, when I finally decided that I was going to have the balls to say that she had was at the helm of a scientific revolution, mm-hmm. I was very wary because everybody talks about scientific revolutions. There's scientific revolution here, scientific revolution there. So it's a little bit glib to talk about a scientific revolution. And But eventually I... I decided that I could do that because for me, for it to be a revolution, it has to change, you know, every aspect of how we look at the world. And so I broke it down into basically five big points. And that becomes the kind of the five last chapters of the, of the film. And it's, they're really that, you know, bacteria, you know, are are not the enemies that we thought they were. In fact, they're the, the basis of life. That's number one. Number two is that the genes don't control the organism, but rather the cell and the organism with all its cells controls itself, basically, um, or is in charge of itself. Three, that symbiosis This thing that was simply, you know, when I took biology, symbiosis was a little thing on the side of the textbook that talked about lichens and then went back to the real story. The symbiosis is fundamental to everything, that everything lives in symbiosis. And even to try to describe something particular living in symbiosis is missing the point that everything lives in symbiosis because it's all one. And then four is about evolution and that evolution is, you know, not this kind of individualistic struggle to survive. And that, this, you know, the, the survivors are the ones that pass on their genes. But it's this endeavor in which the whole system changes in response to a changing environment. And then the fifth was this whole idea of Gaia, which is really what pulls it all together. The idea that everything is interconnected into the biosphere, which is one, one thing that really evolves and, you know, is both the environment and the organisms in it and changes and grows and controls its own environment and controls the percentages of chemicals in the atmosphere and so forth. So once I realized that, I realized that this is a whole, a whole shift in everything. And I felt justified in calling it a a revolution. I think that that was really the, the, the thing that kept driving me forward was to try to get that across. Um, and to really, you know, when you make this type of film, you're basically always hoping that the viewer will at a certain point get this incredible aha moment, you know, this moment when they, Oh my God, I get it. And you want to have people get that. But you also know that everybody's going to get it at a different time because of who they are, where they're coming from, or, you know, how much they're paying attention or whatever. So it's a question of of building a structure which allows people to build up their own understanding and reach these moments of understanding, deep understanding. Right. So, John, you've got these five points. Bacteria are not our enemies, but they're the basis of life. 
Genes don't control the organism, but the organism is in charge of itself. Symbiosis isn't just this ancillary thing. It's actually absolutely fundamental. Evolution is not just an individualistic struggle to survive. And Gaia pulls it all together because, well, in my words, I don't know if you would use these words, but it's the fractal pattern of biology at the largest possible level that the whole earth, in some sense at least, operates as a single organism, as a single regulating entity, right? Which if you go peel the onion on that, you'll find basically 50 years of fierce debate about that, right? right? But what you'll also see is that the Gaia hypothesis has consistently moved the ball down the field. It has consistently proven to be a fruitful endeavor. But the reason this is in a revolution in biology is it completely changes the very cause and effect notion of how things get done in nature, right? It's, I mean, uh, speaking as an engineer, I mean, it is not an exaggeration to say this is revolutionary. And in fact, you know, you said something interesting about five minutes ago. You said something like, this was pulling together disparate disciplines and ideas and actually giving you a unifying framework in which to think about all of them. Right. You know what? I completely agree because I've spent most of my career in technology and business and everything that I see going on in biology also goes on in technology and in business. So if you say, Business isn't about ruthless cutthroat cooperation. It's about competition. It's about cooperation and ecosystems, right? Right. If you, so symbiogenesis says that evolutionary events happen when branches of the tree of life come together. Well, where is that more evident than in technology? Exactly. Right? You take an app and you combine it with the taxi business and you get Uber and Lyft, right? Right. right. And so like this is going on everywhere. This is growth and creativity just continually happening and creating more complexity because Uber is more complex than a yellow cab. Right. Uh, Actually, but much more, much more so, right? Right. Well, I can't imagine that you wanting to do this was just received with open arms. Like, you know, we, we would like to think that everybody would have given you a big hug and kiss and say, John, thank you for, did you encounter some resistance? Can you tell me about that? No, I didn't encounter too much resistance because I pretty much stayed within the circles of Lynn's own colleagues and support system. And I never intended to make an objective journalistic look at evolutionary biology and weigh, you know, say Dawkins' ideas against Lynn's ideas or Futuma's ideas against Lynn's ideas. Rather, I decided that I wanted to make a film that was about Lynn Margulis's vision and how it came about. So it was, in its very nature, a, you know, kind of a one-sided approach. I got some resistance from people wanting to to a little bit clean up Lynn's uh, reputation. Um, she got involved with some things which weren't orthodox and were uh, probably caused her a lot of friction in her life. For instance, the biggest one was Donald Williamson, who comes into the last chapter, the one on evolution, or second to last chapter. And there was the, there were several people who basically kind of took me aside and said, you know, John, don't include Donald Williamson. I mean, you know, I don't know what that guy was all about. And I considered it, but, you know, there was no reason not to. And I happen to think that his ideas are also revolutionary. And so I got a little resistance of that type of thing, talking about the first part of her set theory, in which she talks about the spirochete of forming with uh, archaea bacteria, joining with an archaea bacteria, that which has, n- has not been proven yet, I add yet, 
People also said, you know, don't go into that because it just makes her look bad. But of course, that was just a ridiculous suggestion because that was the basis of her idea. And, and you know, the, and the, one of the things is that somehow these people don't understand that it doesn't matter whether these ideas are right or wrong. Mm. Um, all science mm. goes yeah. through a period um, where a lot of stuff is wrong. And she would admit that, yeah, maybe this stuff is wrong, but you have to pursue it until it's proven wrong or, and or it's replaced by a better idea. And Don Williamson would say exactly the same. You know, he was dying for someone to, you know, to engage and really prove him wrong because that would lead to a better idea, one would hope. And so that was really the only resistance I got. I, I chose not to, to go into some of the political controversies that Lynn got herself involved with, which were many. By the way, the basis of all her political controversies is the same, that we have to look at the science. We have to look at the science. Um, when it came to AIDS or Lyme disease or um, the controversy over 911, she just would say, you know, I'm not doubting anything. I just think we have to look at the science. And people didn't always get that. And they accused her of being an AIDS denier and all this stuff. And it had nothing to do with that. She just said, you know, look at the science because a lot of the science was not good science. But in terms of the film itself, I got nothing but support from her extensive network of colleagues and people. And one or two people didn't want to be interviewed. And I think that's because they were worried that they might end up not being supportive or saying things that I think it was because they had a bad experience with Lynn and they didn't want to get involved in that. Um, well, I love how you bring up Donald Williamson. I think that's one of the most fascinating parts of the film and you do a really good job of of explaining that in maybe three minutes but can you just give people a sense of what donald williamson was about so donald williamson who i met on the isle of man which is between ireland and great britain a little island beautiful island um, was a planktologist and that means he studied plankton which are you know all sorts of little creatures, animals, plants, bacteria, so forth, that float in the ocean. And he was quite well regarded in this field. But for his whole career, he was puzzled by the fact that the larva, which you know you might consider the, um, the young of an adult, so many animals, not all, but many animals have larvae, and the most common one is the caterpillar and the butterfly, the caterpillar being the larva of a butterfly or moth. And he was puzzled by the fact that how could mutations in natural selection have come up with this thing where you have a, the young is the caterpillar and the adult is the butterfly. You just can't piece that together. No matter how many thought experiments you do, you can't <laughs> piece it together. Yeah. And then when he looked at the larva that he studied, he saw that in many instances, two larvae could look very much the same, but that their respective adults are very, very different, different genuses, different families. And how is that possible? And for most of his teaching career, and he taught, I don't know, a full career, he would kind of bring this up in his lectures, and he would basically just say it's unexplained and move on. And when he retired, he decided to devote his life to this question. By the way, as a parenthesis, I should add that many of the scientists I encountered and interviewed were retired or independent because a lot of their work could not have been done within the traditional academic tenure-based system, which is a remarkable thing to think about. Um, yes, it is. So in any way, he went through several ideas about how this could came about. You know, I think his first ideas were that somehow the genes of one organism had to have been transferred to another organism. And he thought maybe viruses could have done this or bacteria could have done this because there's a lot that we know about how viruses can transfer 
genetic material from one organism to another. And spirochetes can do this too. But he dismissed that idea, and he kept thinking about hybridization, but he would always say, that's ridiculous. That could never have happened. And then one day he said, well, what if it was hybridization? And he started to develop his theory that, or his hypothesis, that the ancestor of a caterpillar, and this is the case of a butterfly and caterpillar, the ancestor of a caterpillar and the ancestor of a butterfly were both adult organisms and that they hybridized, which is to say the sperm of one fertilized the egg of the other. And generally, this would not result in anything, anything viable. But once in a million years, and he emphasizes it doesn't have to happen very often, once mm-hmm. in a million years, some a viable creature came out of it. And just like there are hybrids in many different kingdoms, I mean, and certainly plants hybridize all the time. But his hypothesis suggests that instead of there being an adult, which is kind of a combination between a caterpillar and a butterfly, something like, you know, a, a donkey being a combination of organisms, that they express themselves sequentially. So that first you have the caterpillar, and then you go back into a fluid situation. And if you open up a cocoon, and I've done this many times, you'll find this fluid, this gooey stuff. It's like an egg yolk. So the caterpillar goes into a stage when it reverts to this gooey stuff, like an egg, and out comes a butterfly. I use the uh, butterfly-caterpillar analogy because it's the one that we're most familiar with. And he didn't really study that so much. He studied organisms that live in the ocean. So he developed this theory, and it was pretty heretical. But he kept working on it and working on it, and he did experiments, and he had some success with his experiments in terms of creating a larva of a mix between a starfish and a sea urchin. And in the film, you can see him taking the sperm out of the starfish. So he would, you know, artificially inseminate basically a sea urchin. And and he did get some living creatures um, that were, as he says, unlike anything he'd ever seen before. And this is a guy who looks at this stuff a lot, but they didn't live. And he wanted to do more experiments, but he had an accident, unfortunately, and uh, had a stroke and could never really get back to work. But he continued his research in theories, and he eventually concluded that all of larvae, all animals that have larvae, this came about through a hybridization. So that it happened more than once, happened many times. So it's an amazing it's an amazing idea, but it's very plausible in a way once you open your mind outside of the conventional idea that of hybridization being you know unknown. Well, what it says it suggests that a metamorphosis life cycle is actually two living creatures living right. in one body, and you know it's funny, John is is I had a conversation yesterday with a woman who's a therapist. And I said, I bet you use the word metamorphosis at least once a month. And she goes, I used it yesterday with a client, right? Right. And I said, and I kind of told her just a little bit about this because she was willing to kind of hear the geeky conversation about it. And she was kind of intrigued. And I said, so... What if you looked at your client who's in a metamorphosis is actually, you know, expressing two different lives? And she's like, yeah, that's actually a very useful way of thinking about it. And, you know, I I see this in in business all the time. Um, I have a colleague who he started a company that it was basically a seminar and training company for pastors and churches, but he had this little business that grew out of it, which was an app for people donating, like on Sunday, right? Right. Like open your app and make a donation. And when I met him, the app was just this little afterthought and the rest of the business was this whole complicated thing. And I said, that's your real business right there. This other thing is just kind of a sideshow. And so he went and he changed all his energy and just 
you know, just like the butterfly consuming the caterpillar, the software business just basically consumed the other business. Eventually it was just a software company. He went, he sold it for $10 million. <laughs> and uh, somebody's like, that was really valuable. Now, you would never sell a seminar company for $10 million, but a software company that has all the stuff. And so like, I see this happening all the time. It, it makes perfect sense to me. Like I could totally buy the idea that a caterpillar and a butterfly are just two creatures that are one is the beginning of the life cycle and the other one is the second half. And wow, right. you know, what an elegant, I mean, isn't that just a, an elegant way of looking at things? And especially when you consider the caterpillar, um, as you know, if you have a garden, just eats all the time, eats all the time. Um, but a butterfly doesn't eat at all. A butterfly takes fluids in, you know, nectar, um, and gets obviously some nourishment that way, but that they have different kind of roles, right? There are different functions in nature. I think to me what this points out and the objections that come from this idea is, you know, how little we know about genetics and how little we know about development. And it's really, you know, when you start opening your mind and thinking about these things, and realizing that all organisms, well, let's just say all animals, share genetic sequences, share a lot of genetic sequences. This old saying about how you know, much we share with chimpanzees, our closest relatives, you know, 90-some percent, I think. So if we all share these genetic sequences and we all use similar proteins but use them in different ways, which means that somehow taking our DNA, you could make, you know, or another animal could use our DNA and make something totally different if it used the same proteins in different ways. So that to me, it indicates that the butterfly and the caterpillar share the same genome, but use it in different ways. And that's a real break from the traditional idea of the relationship between the genome and the organism. It's mind boggling and all these things, you know, just kind of forced to open your eyes and let go of a lot of stuff that you were taught in school. And getting back to your first question, one of the biggest things that I had to do was really train myself to let go of the ideas I had learned in school and the ideas that I thought were true because I had been taught they were true. And once you start to do that, so many things make sense. And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at business or psychology or biology. We have certain truths. And once you kind of let go of those and start to look at the same material with different assumptions or with just open-mindedness, you know, it, you can really learn a lot of stuff and see things differently. And I'm sure in business, you know, that's what leads to real creativity, Right. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, in fact, in business, big innovations almost never come from the inside of any industry. Right. Like digital cameras, as we use them today, they, they didn't come from Kodak. Right. Right. And like there's a million stories like that. And then there's a there's a whole bunch of stories where the big innovation, it totally came from the outside, right? Uber did not come from the taxi industry. You know, Bill Gates did not come from the mainframe industry. Federal Express did not come from the shipping industry. And if you look at it, what happened in all, whether it's where did Google come from or where did Microsoft come from or where did Uber come from? They came when branches of the tree of life came together and you could manage to fit. Now, we all know there's many, many attempts that fail, right? It's, it's just like Donald Williamson's once in a million years thing is like, right. hey, you know, you could fertilize this sperm and this egg together and doesn't work. And then you try it again and that doesn't work. And you try it again. It's like, well, welcome to my life as an entrepreneur. Like this just sounds so familiar. You know, right. It's like, this is my life. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> right, right. So that must be one of the, lessons that you teach or or talk about you know what does it take uh, to succeed in a business or a new business right you have to be open-minded and look elsewhere you know yes 
I showed about six or eight minutes of symbiotic earth to a conference with a bunch of entrepreneurs and they loved it. They thought it was great. And when we got to the part where Lynn Margulis was debating back and forth with Richard Dawkins about symbiogenesis, and he's go, well, you know, we have this beautiful theory over here and it explains everything. Why would you want to drag in symbiogenesis? And she says, because it's there. <laughs> Right. Right. <laughs> and everybody just laughed because because right. they all recognize the grip that an orthodoxy can have on any group of people in any environment trying to do anything, right? right? We could be talking about how you make hamburgers and french fries, we could be talking about psychology, whatever, but you know you have these rigid mindsets and you know what whenever i watch these clips of lynn the thinking is just so refreshing and you made a comment very early on you said science was stuff that we memorized and we took tests and we got the right answers and it kind of reminds me of people in a liturgical church just like mouthing the words right and think how different that is. So, you know, that's a picture, right? Okay, stand up now, sit down now, kneel now, say this, say that, which I'm not really criticizing. It has its place. There, There's a very kind of comforting ritual to that. And, you know, that's okay. But let's contrast that to a bunch of Jewish rabbis debating Torah and there's all these different views, right? And, and you mix it up and it gets very animated. And that's the sense that I get from Len is, Hey, let's bring it on. You know, let's bring the ideas to this table. Let's let science figure it out. We have a method, we have a process and we just haven't used it enough. That's the sense that I get when I read, watch, whatever. Right. Right. And science, too, has become very, you know, much like that. Ortho Some parts of science have become very much like that ritualistic religion that you describe, which is scary, too, because we're not supposed to have the answers in science. Well, yeah, but like... Well, we have to have the answers to, to, to pass the test. <laughs> well, listen to what you just said, right? We're not supposed to have the answers in science. And look, there's a lot of people, especially non-scientists who right. think that science is all about the answers. Right. Newton had the answer and Einstein had the answer and Darwin had the answer and Francis Crick had the answer. And here we are like pass the test, get the thing right. Like what are all you people arguing about? Why can't you get it? Why can't you just take the class and pass the test? Like what's your problem? Right? <laughs> like sometimes they just, they can't see it. They, well, I think that's the case with Richard Dawkins in that debate, that he really honestly doesn't understand. I got this worked out. I got this worked out. Why do you have to bring up this stuff? We got it, you know? <laughs> and he doesn't really see that perfectly understandable, I suppose. Well, as an engineer, I mean, going back 10 or 15 years, I looked at what Dawkins was saying, and I said, well... I'm not disagreeing that evolution somehow happened, but I never learned anything in engineering school that would actually work like that. Whereas when I discovered Lynn Margulis, I was like, now this totally makes sense to an engineer. If, if an organism possesses its own agency and control over its own genome, you know, if you subject the bacteria to stress and it starts rearranging its DNA to try to come up with something, that makes perfect sense and i can use that right and see i think see i think this is going to go on a long time i i don't think we're just talking about some like okay so lynn figured some stuff out and then we just kind of change courses and we go down this road i think the implications continue to multiply because like i haven't seen a lot of people in technology, engineering, mathematics, taking lens ideas and running with them, but there's no reason why they can't. Like it only suggests that there's way, way more discoveries 
just waiting around the corner somewhere, even know what they are right now. Yeah, and we are in some type of a transition of paradigm shift, as it were. You know, we're in the middle of it. Maybe culture is always in the middle of a shift, you know, a broader philosophical idea. But certainly now we, we see ourselves as being in the midst of it. And I always like to think of, you know, so, you know, what if I had been, you know, an educated adult and always known that, you know, as is obvious, that the sun goes around the earth. I mean, that's as obvious as day and night, literally. And then all of a sudden, someone started to say, no, actually, it's the other way around. I mean, it's not like all of a sudden I say, oh, yeah, I see now. And that'd be the end of it. No, you're in this transition when, you know, the whole everything changes because of that. And it's hard to take on board. And there must have been plenty of people who tried to take that on board and couldn't and, you know, so forth. So, yeah, it's amazing. I think that is going on in biology right now. I think cause and effect is being turned upside down and we're right in the middle somewhere right now as far as i can tell of like well you know people aren't really sure you know maybe the old thing still kind of works and there's other people like nope doesn't work at all you got it but we're like somewhere in that middle transition but it must be sort of like yeah back in the middle ages when people like okay so the the earth goes around the sun not the other way like that it's a complete inversion of your Right. Like you right. have to have this whole new picture of the universe, so to speak. Right. And that's, that's not easy. Right. No, it's, it's not easy. And uh, you know, we're in the midst of it. So let's wrap up here. Why don't you, you know, are there a couple other interesting things that you would uh, want people to know about your film? Like what would you say to a person who maybe didn't completely understand everything that we're talking about today, but, heard a few things that piqued their interest. I think the, the biggest thing is the shift away from this notion of survival of the fittest. That is hard for people because it's really so ingrained in our culture. And it's a very important shift because as Mary Catherine Bateson says in the film, the competition model is likely to be lethal. And we can see that happening today all the time, that this notion that you succeed in life, whether you're a student or whether you're a world power, through winning in competitive struggles has got to change. And when people still hold on to that notion because they see it as somehow true, I like to point out that you know, you don't have to think about the science, just think about the metaphors. And that metaphors are things we use to animate and our lives and to help us get through life. And you can just decide that the metaphor of survival of the fittest isn't really working for you. And you can choose other metaphors. And that to me is a huge point because it gets away from the notion that somehow it's all about the science. And what it's really about is how science influences our lives and how we can also influence our lives. And the other thing that I kind of wanted, often want to say to people when they watch the film is that, you know, you don't have to understand everything in the film. Just like when you pick up an article in the newspaper or something and you come to a paragraph that kind of loses you a little bit because it's too technical or something, you skip right over it and go on to the next paragraph because it keeps coming back and it really has to kind of wash over you. And then you may arrive at the same conclusion as if you had understood all this science. In fact, Jim Shapiro has a great, a great way of getting around that problem. But, you know, he, he puts the hard stuff first and then the complicated stuff later and, and says in the introduction, you can skip the complex stuff, you know, It's nice. Right. Well, it seems like, you know, maybe part of the problem is with the, the rigidity of the old school scientists themselves is they have completely bought into the survival of the fittest paradigm and like, well, you know, if, if my idea is wrong, then I get flushed down the toilet, you know, so I just, I have to out survive you. I just have to machine gun your idea to death. Right. And you're like, well, 
maybe if uh, we can get rid of this survival of the fittest mentality, maybe there can be a metamorphosis without uh, somebody getting killed. You know, like maybe there's just a different way of thinking about even the transition of science itself into a new paradigm. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's, it takes a very special scientist to base their career on some ideas, particularly if they've written a textbook about it, and then to be open-minded enough to say, well, maybe these ideas are changing and uh, I should write a new textbook. <laughs> and, but I think the big problem is what you started off with is that scientists have a tendency to take metaphors too seriously. <laughs> And a metaphor is simply a way of communicating an idea in a shorthand. And they're very important and very necessary and part of our language. But at the one point, I know that Dawkins would not admit that the selfish gene was a metaphor. Right. So the uh, equating a catchy phrase with the truth about a very complex living system is very dangerous. As we've seen. I think that what you've done in Symbiotic Earth is you've laid out very clearly a different way of thinking of things, a very useful new set of metaphors that I think fit the world much better than the old metaphors. And we'll certainly admit that they're not perfect and they're not complete, but I love the movie. I can't wait to see it come out and reach a much broader audience and I just heartily recommend it. I've, I've raved about it to a number of people. I, I showed about six or eight minutes of it to a group of people here in Chicago a few weeks ago, and they loved it. So really good job, very thorough, very careful work that you did. And I just want to congratulate you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for the interview. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.